This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steveroseph.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. All right, so welcome back. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Today, Steve, Steve is giving us a special treat. A special treat. We are learning about one of his favorite theories that he thinks encompasses everything and everyone. Everything. At all times. Self-determination theory. Exactly. Self-determination theory or. Self-determination theory. There it is. Self-determination theory or. SDT. SDT for short. I love it. Which you like to send to me and I always misread as STD. (laughs) Like, hey, we're talking about uh, STD today. Let's not. Let's uh, no. Okay. Back on to self-determination theory. Tell me, what is it exactly, Steve? I guess the name of it doesn't really say what it is. It sounds like it's like about independence and freedom, but that's really only one part of the theory. So this is a theory that really explains motivation and particularly intrinsic motivation. So the type of motivation that people have to do something that really comes from within, they're not just motivated by money or coercion or punishment. It's something that comes from a deeper place of passion or really wanting to do something. And self-determination theory is really a great attempt to describe the ingredients involved in this type of motivation. And there's three ingredients, so it makes it easy to remember. And this is why I like it, because not only is it a great theory and research sense, but uh, it's also quite practical uh, clinically. And you can kind of remember it and and kind of know where you are in a conversation and then kind of incorporate elements of the theory. So I think I've found it useful. Maybe our listeners might find it useful as well in considering these three areas in their own lives or in their conversations with others with whom they are helping, who, if you're trying to help someone who's lacking motivation, these ingredients can really help facilitate that. Let me take a stab. Is it just tell them that they'll get there, that you respect them for doing it, that it's not that big of a deal and that they can definitely achieve it. That, that's all you need to do, right? <laughs> You're being sarcastic. Yeah, you can do it. It's not, oh, no, it's not that far. You'll, you'll be performing in no time or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> so where did you want to begin with this? Well, I wanted to kind of uh, leave a little bit of a, a cliffhanger, but I think maybe we, we can start by getting into some of these three ingredients and what they are. And then maybe after that, we define them maybe we can get into some practical approaches to working with them. Uh, And so the first ingredient would be autonomy. This is a fancy word for uh, self determining your actions of freedom. Oh God, really? Autonomy. You can choose your own actions and choose your own course in life. You have control over your life and self. There you go. That's a bad You're using your ivory tower verbiage here. You're self-determining. That's what the name of the theory is. Self-determining. Wait a minute. That's the name of the theory. That's probably not the best way to say it. You could have freedom and not feel like you have the freedom. So that's not it. It's that you actually feel like you have some level of freedom to choose and determine your actions. I'm stuck on that statement you just said, though. Hold on. When can you have freedom and feel like you don't? Well, you can have freedom and feel like you don't quite often. The question, though, is like, do you actually have freedom then if you don't feel like you do? Yeah, it could be a cognitive distortion going on, like we talked about in that episode. Yeah episode a few ago yeah yeah where you are doing something like uh, maybe externalizing uh catastrophizing black and white thinking it's all or nothing yeah so you could be engaging in a cognitive distortion which makes you feel like you have no choice and a lot of people start conversations in counseling particularly in a crisis setting with that mentality and working with them to not tell them, yes, you do, but you'll see as we talk about how to help people, it's opening up the cracks of, of getting them to recognize those small elements where they do have control and then focusing on those small things. And so that's kind of the first ingredient is autonomy. It's a fancy word, but, uh, we really just need to feel like we have some control over our actions. We've talked about this in the past of when 
someone forces you to, to do something or tells you you have to do it or like tries to get you to, to practice the piano and you don't want to practice the piano. Which I have talked about before. Yeah. It takes away your sense of control over the situation and makes you hate the thing. What's your experience there? Yeah. I, I mean, as somebody who's in the gig economy and uh, freelance a lot of the time, I should sit down and do work and write. And I have a lot of my own projects that I want to work on. I have a lot of story ideas that I could work on that I think are really good, but I don't want to sell them for like pennies. And I'd like to kind of make a compilation. But instead of sitting down and working on any of those things in, at any given point, I feel like I, I need to sit down and do something for pay. So I feel like I have to to survive to write these other stories forced by this certain framework of stuff that I'm, it's okay. It's It's got a lot of flexibility, but it's just, it, it won't be mine. And uh, there's a lot of constraints and I have to make sure it's like of a certain quality or else blah, blah, blah. I was reviewing Daniel Pink's book Drive and he was talking about how if it's a creative endeavor, the more you pay and the more like pressure there is on it, the less good the performance and like the less motivation there is there. And I definitely relate with that a lot because if I sit down and do any work, I feel I should be doing it for pay basically so I can pay make ends meet. But then that makes me really hesitant to sit down to do any work at all because I know if I sit down, I have to do something I don't particularly want to do. Yeah. Exactly. And, and people can relate to that in jobs where they just feel so constrained where they don't have the freedom to do things the way they want. They feel like they're just getting micromanaged. Have you ever been micromanaged? <laughs> I'm sure there's been a several jobs, but it's actually not as common. It depends. Generally, not too badly, honestly. Okay. How micro are we talking about? Like they, they want you to do things in specific ways and like chop things in specific ways or whatever. Yeah particular job, but they didn't usually like stand over my shoulder and be like, no, not like that. Not like that this way. But I hear stories like horror stories quite often uh, due to the nature of the calls I take where or people feel quite micromanaged or just can completely like in a toxic environment constrained. Just a reminder for anybody that hasn't been like has just jumped in more recently. Steve is a counselor online, particularly with uh, emergency calls. Was it? Yeah. So I do, I do a more immediate to single session, like crisis and immediate support, but I also to do longer term counseling and private recs with addiction counseling. So they're very different areas and uh, more crisis oriented ones come with kind of an escalated level of risk and all of the rest of it. So, all right. So uh, you back to, we were talking briefly about micromanaging for some reason, we're still on autonomy, I presume. Well, it takes away your autonomy when you feel like somebody's controlling you and uh, you don't have as much motivation to do the job because you don't have that freedom. That's the importance of autonomy in motivation. What's the second ingredient? Can I go through the, the list here? The second one is competence and or mastery, I guess you can say. Yeah, Daniel Pink's model. Getting slightly better at something and small wins over time where you feel like you were progressing where you are gaining skill level in something and it's the opposite of i guess stagnation feeling stuck or actually actively declining in skill level or i think maybe more like something that there is no real depth like for instance if you have to just screw this onto that or just like put on rivets or there's no skill level yeah and you're just standing on a line you can't improve at all there's no like well i mean i guess you can everything can get slightly better but like not in a meaningful way yeah like you can get slightly more accurate, shave off a couple of milliseconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so things that with very little skill or room for improvement, it would be kind of that stuckness. This particular ingredient relates a lot to the concept of flow, which actually, now that I'm thinking, we could probably talk about flow at some point as a, as a concept. You know, what's funny about that is that like it's such a looming force in psychology that I have not actually read the seminal work by... Is it Chicksent Mihaly? Uh, Chicksent Mihaly. Yeah, sorry. It's he. His name is repeating somewhat, and it's <laughs> not too familiar. But I've heard it a bunch of times. Yeah. And everyone references it, and everyone talks about the ingredients. But I should probably read the actual direct one. So uh, yeah, we can talk about it later. I mean, I was thinking the exact same thing. I almost didn't even want to mention it. I was like, the concept of flow is almost like the concept of self care. It's like everyone's everyone's talking about it these days, you know. Which it's it's good and great. I agree with all of it, but uh, it's, it's just you. Hear it on the radio, you hear it on like podcasts, you hear it everywhere. And it's always, I guess, it's not 
usually that's to the end of being like this is good and worthwhile because it makes you more productive and also can be enjoyable but like it's usually the bottom line is always like production like it's the number one most important thing you'll kind of enjoy more but you'll get more done that's the real thing there that's the real prize yeah you'll get more yeah so it has this internalized capitalism feel to it and i'm talking about it in a way that it's like oh flows everywhere everyone's talking about it and like well what if you don't listen to cbc radio or npr i guess <laughs> i mean so we can't assume that everyone's like us i mean if you're listening to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> you probably have some sort of seeking out of knowledge, of course, because yeah, like it's what we do all the time. But if you just listen to like the radio and music and comedy podcasts, you might not know about it. You're like, I listen to country music. <laughs> what are you talking about? They talk about flow all the time. <laughs> if you're listening to hip hop, they talk about flow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a verbal flow. Yeah, so. Which, just to point out, Steve is actually big in hip-hop and I am not. So. Yes. And his gangster rap, he used to like to bring that up occasionally in his master's classes, being like, I, I listen to gangster rap and I used to mock you <laughs> and say you brought it up just for shock value to like, you'd say that and then look around to try to get attention. <laughs> yeah. Probably didn't, but I just liked the, the image of that. Prefixing the sentence with, with, as I was listening to gangster rap uh, today on my drive, um, I noticed the um, the internalized capitalism of uh, the hip hop culture in uh, seeking monetary capital. Yeah, that is probably fairly prevalent there, especially in breakout rappers. A lot of time we talk about yeah. how they've made it and how they're rich now. Yeah, kind of like Fifty Cent. I think like he kind of lost it a bit after he made it because he didn't make the transition well enough to topics other than just how he, he was going to make it or how he made it. At least it got my money. Yeah. I hear that's for somewhat common trope where like the kind of whole freshman slump, you know, sophomore slump. Uh, is that true? Sophomore slump. What do you mean? For like their second album or whatever, like after they make it big, if they don't make the jump from talking about just how they're going to make it because like a lot of their early stuff will be about their life. That's more relevant, right? Like living whatever conditions they may be and how they're, they're trying to make it and make something of themselves. And then once they do hit it big and we know who they are, they've already done that and they have to kind of make this content jump from how they're going to make it and how they're going to get money and stuff. And then they have to jump to like other topics that are still how they have money now. Well, yeah, but like stuff that's still more relatable to average people. I think the most popular hip hop doesn't do that. It's very much like now look at all my money. Like I got Lambos. Like it's very in your face. I've made it like, look at me. I'm all the way up. It's like aspirational content, kind of like you could do this too, maybe or vicarious living. Cause like to me, it seems like that content would get boring. It's not aspirational. It's very like, look at me. I'm better than you. <laughs> I'm thinking from the audience's perspective, like why they find it particularly appealing. Cause like, I don't really get it myself Oh, because it makes you feel like you have it too. When you listen to it, because you're like, I'm balling. And it almost like tricks you into feeling like you have a bunch of money. I don't know. It's weird. Okay. So yeah, it's like aspirational slash, slash vicarious living through that. Vicarious. Vicarious. Is what, and then the reason why I'm, we're going, I'm kind of letting this go deeper is because it relates to that need for competence, uh, advancement. But the way we're talking about here is almost that the diluted version of that. It's, it's almost like a tricking yourself into the dirty high of a fake advancement, feeling like you've made it when you really haven't posturing. It's posturing. It's, it's compensating for that lack of mastery or competence by saying, look at, look at all I got. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking more like the venue of like charlatanry where you will kind of go around and it's kind of like that one study, this is related to motivation where if you go around telling people about the plans you're going to do, then people say, wow, that is a good idea. And then you don't, you're less likely to do it. I don't know if this has been contested the whole, I think this entire episode in particular, i um, should be taken with a grain of salt because of the replication crisis, which we'll get into. No, we will talk about that. It should be taken as credible, but take everything as a grain of salt. Well, no, yeah. With a grain of salt means like take it as credible, but be aware that it can change, it can shift like everything in science. Because to me, a grain of salt means like, yeah, just disregard it. Mm, then you'd probably be like a bucket full of salt. Yeah. It's just like a little bit, like be, be cautious that this is how it seems to be currently, but like these things can shift. So the one I'm talking about is, like I said, if you go around telling people your plans, then you're like less likely to pursue them because you're already getting, I guess, a hit of sort of mastery. If we're talking about mastery as like the accolades that come from it, cause it's not, it's not quite the same because this is more like esteem and uh, it's not real mastery. It's a compensation for the lack of mastery. That's not actually real mastery. It's very compelling to people. And I am obviously not immune to that, but I think, is it, do you think because 
with mastery and all this stuff, you get the reputation with that? Or do you think the social side is, oh, I guess that is the last component, isn't it? Yeah, that's the last component. But what you're referring to here is external validation. Like I got my money, look at me, look how great I'm doing. And that's when you're telling people your goals and like, look at my diet, I'm doing great. That's external validation, which is very different than intrinsic motivation. So what you're doing is compensating for the lack of intrinsic um, motivation slash competence piece by getting extrinsic validation, which is really not actually getting the real need met. It's just kind of the dirty high version that's more short-term gain, long-term cost. Right. Like get rich quick, but in motivation sense. <laughs> yeah. In motivation sense. Cause you'll be like on fire and you're blasting that gangster rap. Rolling down the street, blasting that. Rolling down the street in your least uh, Lamborghini. <laughs> you're bumping them beats and you're like, yes, I made it. Almost, it's like a drug. You trick yourself into getting that sense of mastery. Like, I've mastered life. I'm better than everyone. It's like kind of an external dirty high that goes away and then you're left with nothing. <laughs> with nothing at all. Nothing at all. You're getting a social cue that makes you think that you're better, I guess. Like, I, I was one comedian, I can't remember her name. She was on like 23, 24, but she was saying how she got engaged and it didn't work out. But when she got the ring, she suddenly was like, level up. I'm better than everybody. <laughs> Look at me. I've done it. I've done the thing that everyone tells me I must do to be a value. And oh man, those people haven't done it. <laughs> Look at them. <laughs> and so she immediately kind of bought into it. And I kind of felt like a tinge of that. I think I might have mentioned this before, but like when I got the, the fully value vaccinated i was like i'm invincible <laughs> not really yeah i know i think i got that too but like you're like finally i can do that i can i can go about like a normal person i have this extra power yeah but anyway um i think we're a little bit off so you want to go back to where a little bit a little bit so we've talked about a little astray yeah autonomy was the first one we thought we need that sense of control in your situation we talked about competence as the second one is that sense of leveling up and doing it internally based on actually accumulating skills uh, that are meaningful for you rather than just showing off. Now, the third one is relatedness, which you were alluding to in the social piece is a feeling of a connection to others or something bigger than yourself. It's the opposite of isolation. You say you're a painter and you're, you're getting better. You're doing it yourself. You live off the land, I guess you can do whatever you want. What would be the problem then? I guess you don't feel like you're contributing to the community? Would it be better? I guess would you be more motivated? Yeah, you probably would, I guess, not thinking about it. You feel like you're actually helping people and doing it for a common good. I'm going to deviate a little bit talking about like some business stuff, if that's all right. Yeah. Okay. So for me, I think originally when I started off with business stuff, I was doing stuff for myself being like, I will profit from this. I will do better. It'll be great for me, me. And I found that actually when doing that, when trying to make sales calls and try to connect with customers, I would be very nervous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this also kind of felt like dating as well, where like when speaking to an attractive woman, like you're going up, if you're trying to get something from them, like validation or something, you're always going to be much more nervous. But then when I, in business, at least when I shifted or both rather, but like when specifically it's more tangible with business, when I shifted to thinking about how like I am actually giving something to the customer and that this is something they should want and it will actually help them, then you feel much more brazen and bold in doing these things because you know that it's actually a kind of net negative if you don't take action. Because if you sit back and you don't actually try to at least introduce this to people, give them a choice, let them know that it's there, then you could actually be taking something away from them that could be beneficial ultimately. And I guess that's kind of like how you can stoke the flames of motivation a bit more. It's interesting how you, because uh, usually we, th we think of relatedness, it's like meet new people and like have deep conversations. But you, what you talked about was something a step deeper than that. It's how are you relating to these people in the first place? Is it from the frame of value adding or is it from the frame of value taking? And that in itself is very fundamental because if you're in a perspective of value taking, you could meet all the new people in the world. You're going out approaching people and, and networking and even go to networking events for business purposes. And, and you're doing the thing that you think you need to do to connect and get a sense of relatedness. But uh, if you're doing it as a, as a way to take, you're going to be super nervous. You're going to put people off and you're going to get the exact opposite of what you're actually looking for. Yes. Yeah. And I think you'll be much more discouraged because of that feedback because people will constantly be like, Ugh, get away from me. Yeah. Yeah. And it reinforces the, the problem. Yeah. I think we've talked a little bit about this before with like the go getter versus the go giver, which is a book that we both like a lot. Oh, love the go giver. Yeah. The go getter is somebody that goes and is trying to get 
as the name implies, from people. They're not actually giving anything. Or people that never eat alone is a great book by Keith Ferrazzi because he kind of points out that there's like the shitty way of networking, which is going out and constantly trying to benefit. Like anybody that's really into business or into professional development stuff, you'll find there are people that are running around just trying to take from people. They're trying to make the connection for themselves. They're not really focusing on how that connection can benefit either other people in their network or the person they're speaking to. And they kind of come across like if you say like I'm a networker or I love networking, I love hustling networking. Most people will probably start assuming you're kind of some slimy mm-hmm. dude that's trying to take stuff from people and that they don't actually really want anything to do with. Yeah. Other than if you're useful, but they don't like you as a person. Yeah. Networking has a bad reputation. And I get I get why. Been to a lot of conferences and it's just kind of like Hey, nice to meet you. Here's my business card. Shallow. But I don't think most people are like that from at least the context that I've been in. Uh, I think people are a little bit more sophisticated than that. I think it depends on the field because I think the more the more money that is flowing and the more freely it's flowing, the more of these people you'll probably find. So likely investment things, finance, perhaps uh, higher level business which neither of us have anything to do with. So I'm purely spitballing, but it just seems to me that like in those areas of tech, high tech stuff, those places tend to attract a lot of charlatans. And I think they tend to be the ones that are going to be more likely like this. Or if you're just kind of walking down the street and someone's like, Hey, here, take my mixtape. Listen to my music. Oh, I'm going to charge you for that. You touched it. Like, you know, like you can find. Oh my God. <laughs> you can find- yeah, I know. In, in China, there was this guy that was dressed up as the, the monkey king. And he would go around being like, yeah, take a photo with me, take a photo with me. And then we'd take a photo on our phone. So we already have the photo. And then he'd say, actually, now you have to pay me this much money. And it's like, what? (laughs) We never agreed to this. There's no terms here. Like, what do you think? What do you what? And so I like my friends, because they were all foreigners in China, felt guilty and decided to just give him some money. But like, I was kind of annoyed and walked off. I didn't take a photo, but I would have not paid him either way, because like, that's just underhanded, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So there's all uh, types of people in every type of area. And uh, what a safe statement. <laughs> let's, let's play it safe with this one. Yeah. <laughs> there are good and bad people all over. Yeah. There are good people in the world and bad ones too. But even the bad ones are good people doing bad things. Oh my God. Let's move off of this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the last one was relatedness. We talked about how um, we need that, but not just relating in terms of just connecting, but having a fundamental frame of value offering that connects you to something bigger than yourself, whether it be other people or a cause could be another version of that too. So you said mine was a little bit deeper. What is the theory's stance? Like how does it actually typically present this piece of it? I don't know if there's any typical way. I mean, like it must say like, is it talking about like how you can meet people, how you can just connect with people, how you can help people, which is it like any particular one or is it all of the above? It's, no, it's no, it's no particular, all of the above. It's just feeling a general sense of connection to others. Okay. Um, I was going to ask you about Daniel Pink's theory because he's got the same first two. His third one changes. His is, his third one is about purpose. Huh. Uh, so like, how do you feel that connection and purpose can do you think they're able to be squared away together or do you think they can, uh, they're independent pieces? I haven't thought of this, but I, as you're saying, and I already can see the connection between those two concepts because you can feel connected to other people, uh, which gives you relatedness, but you can feel connected to a larger cause beyond yourself, which gives you purpose. So connection to something could be people or purpose. I think I would personally would prefer purpose because I think a lot of the time purpose does become things do become more purposeful when we're dealing with people and when we're helping people, but that doesn't necessarily have to be your, your main driving force. No, I think a lot of people it is like, I guess if you go like extreme scientists, just pure understanding that purpose can get them out of bed. And I guess he classifies it or Elizabeth Moss Cantor of Harvard, she wrote that for her purpose was, quote, people can be inspired to meet stretch goals and tackle impossible challenges if they care about the outcome, end quote. So to me, that that makes more sense. But like oftentimes they can be similar or adjacent because connection does often create purpose in the thing you're doing. Mm. Like me building the land project to just have like my own space where I can live off the land and live cheaply. That's motivating enough to like escape the kind of rat race and all that, but feel much more propelled to do it when I can focus on how other people can also benefit from that. So it's, it's easier to push yourself more, I guess. Like, I don't think it'd be as motivating. I mean, I, I could be very 
pro nature and all that, but like, I don't think it'd be as motivating to just buy a huge chunk of land just to let it be natural. I mean, that is motivating, but not nearly as motivating to me. Well, I guess you could technically have more agricultural uh, or environmental purposes that are not connected to people. And that sense of relatedness is something that you're experiencing in connection to nature itself, or you can even go even deeper and say uh, like a connection to the universe, or, or it becomes kind of spiritual at some levels if you take it that far. More evolved than I am. Much more evolved than us peasants. So is there anything else you want to say about these three things, or did you want to move on to ego depletion and all that? Well, another name for these three things beyond self-determination theory is basic psychological needs theory is, is kind of another way it's been phrased. I like that phrasing of it because Rather than self-determination just focuses on the autonomy piece, it doesn't suggest the other two concepts involved in the theory. But if you call it basic psychological needs, it comes in a package and you can kind of recognize there's more there than just one thing. Almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there are several of them. There's, uh, depending on your orientation. I think it's got a different flavor though, personally, because if you think about it, self-determination theory is about like figuring out what you're going to do with yourself. Whereas... Basic psychological needs are like what you need to be satisfied and complete. And in that phrasing, I think it should be connected, the relatedness or connection, because being isolated, we're, we're a social species that like you, you can and many do. And I think I am included in that solitary confinement to be a form of torture because we are built to like ping off of other people and to relate to other people. And in that sense, I think it is an essential component. But like in order to really work on something, I, I mean, I guess, if you, again, you can make it more broad and talk about connecting to ideas or concepts or understanding. But I guess that's not usually the kind of connection people think of when we think of relatedness. I don't know. I guess they're, they seem very, very similar, but it's a different framing. One is like being, and the other one is kind of like moving towards doing. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to, to position it. And everyone knows Maslow's. I don't really think about it too often. I, I tend to, to rely rely. That's fair because Maslow's, from what I understand, at least this was what was, I was taught when I was in school. It's been a while, so it could have changed. But they said Maslow's hierarchy of needs is actually one of the most prominent psychological theories that doesn't have very much empirical evidence of it. That's that's what I mean. There's some, I've seen some, but it's not worth its reputation, at least. It's something that everyone knows about, but it's not useful and or scientifically validated as self-determination theory, which is it's a lot more evidence and it's a lot more useful. Right. And it's a lot more actionable because this one's just like, oh, you're feeling down. You're not doing enough work. Get more security. <laughs> Get some more food and comfort in that way. There you go. And the whole hierarchical nature of it, too. I mean, I've, I've written an article even criticizing the order at which people think it needs to be safety and security needs. And then and then you move up the ladder towards uh, your, your relatedness and esteem needs. And really, I've looked at instances, particularly with veterans, where it's the other way around, where they are in physical danger, yet somehow feeling like they're doing self-actualization. Figure that one out, you know, if you go just by the pyramid, you shouldn't be able to do the bottom. You shouldn't be able to actual actualize the top of it if you aren't. Uh, you don't have the bottom of it secured. And so, or I guess if you're in like extreme poverty, like I mean, in those situations, often your like security and safety are not like assured. And I think, and this is maybe like a folk thing, and not, it's not really based in research, but it's more, I guess, with the experience that I've had that like not. Within a certain level of poverty, at least what I've experienced, people are much more together with each other and as like kind of a group a lot of the time, like it's easier to relate to people because you don't have all these walls and barriers and status kind of held up between you. And I guess in North America or like uh, more developed countries, they say like the, the wealthier people get, the more space each individual gets, like they buy like bigger apartments, but their happiness can kind of stagnate or decline as a result because you're kind of isolating yourself away. And I've also found this from travel. If you travel cheaply, you'll meet a lot of people and meet very interesting people and probably friends you can keep in touch with if you choose to. But if you travel more expensively, you're in luxury and you're kind of completely cordoned off from other people all the time, unless you're on like a cruise or something. So it's this kind of weird thing. But I mean, like, I guess my point is like I was living in a hostel and the one thing we were, there was like rats at one point and bed bugs. And I found that like the community was still really strong and great there. That was the one thing that it did have. So take away the pyramid, but even taking away all of the complex concepts involved in that theory. I think self-determination theory or, or the basic psychological needs approach we're talking about is more elegant, one may say, uh, parsimonious, if you're more of a scientist 
scientifically minded person and I guess actionable if you're more of a clinician, perhaps. I'm just looking at the definition of parsimony because it'd be easier. Nope, it's not the right word. <laughs> Why are you looking at Parsimony is some research just to, because you just dropped a big word and didn't say what it meant. Parsimonious means the simplest model slash theory with the least assumptions and variables, but with the greatest explanatory power is the preferred one. So if you have something that can explain stuff that doesn't require a lot of like crazy assumptions and crazy variables, like the least amount of those things, the simplest that explains the most is probably the most correct. Does that not fit? No, it does. I'm just, I'm just explaining what that word means. Oh, good. I hear that word all the time, you know, on the radio. <laughs> I don't know about that one. That's when I, I I hear sometimes in like the more scientific books I read, but like I don't hear it super commonly and definitely not on podcasts. I don't think I've ever heard it in a podcast. Well, thank you for checking that at the door. And yeah, I'm trying to be more approachable to random people who just can jump in because we have spoken about it in a previous episode, but I don't remember which one. Okay, so we've talked about what I guess self-determination theory is and the basic psychological needs kind of model of it. Daniel Pink, his book Drive. What else do we want to talk about? Uh, ego depletion. I guess was the former theory. I think it was very popularized by a book by Roy Baumeister, which is called Willpower. And we mentioned the replication crisis. Do you, do you want to mention what that is? Why would we even get into that if people don't know why we're talking about ego depletion in the first place? Maybe I'll lead into to that. I'm just heading it off because in psych, generally, I've learned that if you say something is true and then you negate it, the negation, the saying that's not true, that can be misremembered. That will be forgotten. If people are more likely to remember things to be true. So I'm trying to head this off by saying... What we're about to say is it was the former theory, the most prominent theory. And with the replication crisis, there has been some question about how valid it is. It's a concept that it was one of the most popular things in psychology among psychologists, not like Maslow stuff, but it's up for debate like right now. Literally, it's it's being debated in the literature. So, yeah. We are going to give our two cents. The reason why we're bringing up... First, got to define it. Yeah, the, the ego depletion is because this theory that we've been talking about so far with its three ingredients explains motivation. But when you ask the average person of, of what does it take to be motivated, they're not going to say, oh, well, autonomy, competence, and relatedness, of course. They're not going to say that. What are they going to say? Well, it takes strong willpower because that's our... Or grit. Grit, yeah. And so that's our common sense notions of what motivation entails. You got to white knuckle it. You know, you, you just stop doing that. Just don't. Don't do it. Just don't. Just don't. <laughs> yeah, that, that's all it takes. Just to decide to don't. <laughs> Just decide to don't. <laughs> to define the theory, since we keep dancing around it, and I'm sure you're frustrated, dear listener, about what, what it is. Ego depletion is about this model where it talks about how the brain has a limited number of resources you can use each day. It works kind of like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets over time. But immediately after using it like a muscle, you'll be weaker for until you're able to rest sufficiently. The model kind of often links that to glucose. So the amount of uh, sugar in the brain. And I guess if you're a low carb person, they would say ketones, which can be converted to, I think, sugar like uses for the brain. I don't remember exactly. But once you run out of that, then that's why. And that's why we get hangry. That's why if we haven't eaten, we have no willpower, etc. That's the, how the theory's basic notes. It's a really crib notes. So it, it's been like a decade for me since I studied this. Yeah. And so this theory was an attempt to explain what is willpower, really, and the mechanics of how willpower works. And the conclusion would be, if, if the theory is correct, that willpower is not a very good thing because it's very short term. It burns out fast. It's like a dirty form of fuel for energy. And therefore, it cannot be trusted. It cannot be relied upon for long term motivation. OK, so willpower is to motivation as I guess inspiration is to doing productive work. Love it. Inspiration is the Thing that sparks it and gets you going but you need discipline and in this case i guess in ego depletion the argument is you need structures or smarter choices instead of just relying solely on willpower yes and for example in the field of addiction if you wanted to quit drinking alcohol but you left all of the alcohol and the beers in your fridge and you just decided i got a lot of willpower i'm just going to resist it according to this theory is your willpower will deplete shortly maybe you'll be able to resist it for a few hours 
those days, whatever, but you're just going to go back to it because you are depleting your limited willpower supplies. And so the alternative would be remove it from the environment. You're not burning willpower now because it's not a major trigger in front of you. And, and therefore you can use little bursts of willpower when needed in appropriate moments where there's unexpected triggers, but to remove it is the option here. And what are your thoughts? There are different catches to all that. Like if you have it available and you can see it, then that's going to, every time you see it, it's going to be brought to mind and it's going to be a temptation to do it. So the example was like having a bowl of candy near you, you're liable to eat more candy in general than if it were out of sight, even though it's still available because you're not being constantly primed to think about it, to consider whether it's an option. For example, I guess people talk about how like you, they're on a diet and their friends invite them to go to, or they're just eating healthier, let's just say better way. And the friends invite them to go to uh, a buffet. They'll be like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll just eat the, the healthier things. But then like all that stuff is sitting there and every moment that they're in the restaurant and they can walk by and see all the sweets and delicious deep fried shit. They are going to be tempted each time. And eventually, even though you're consuming food, you're going to, you're going to eventually cave and have much more. So I guess the argument is you should be aware of when you'll be tempted and to not put yourself in temptation. People kind of get that in the common sense kind of way when it comes to dating and stuff. Like if you're in a relationship and somebody that is very attractive is kind of tempting you and you know they are, it's best to avoid them altogether than to give them the chance to possibly change your mind. But for some reason, when it comes to other things, we can overlook that and be like, eh, it's just candy in a bowl in front of me. It's not going to tempt me. I can ignore that. So the goal here is to use as least willpower as possible because willpower can be trusted. And what I also like about the ego depletion concept is that this is transferable. For example, if you're struggling with addiction to alcohol and you're constantly resisting candy, Candy, the depletion of your willpower in resisting the candy will be make you more vulnerable to relapsing on or, or seeking out alcohol, for example. So it's it's not just about the thing that you're resisting. It's a general all encompassing kind of you're exerting so much willpower in this one area that you're going to be vulnerable in all of these other areas as well. Again, I don't know the state of whether how, how valid this is. I remember actually back when I was, I think I volunteered at a, uh, a lab for a bit just after I graduated and they were studying ego depletion there. And I remember reading some of the background papers and stuff where it was talking about how this doesn't actually hold up all the time. If, if somebody's taught about this model, then it will hold more true because they believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. This is why we have to be careful about how we kind of conceptualize the world, how we view the world because people who didn't believe this was true or was told that that wasn't true like this thing doesn't deplete ego it actually has been shown in studies to make people more gritty i guess then they didn't show the ego depletion ways of doing this if you're wondering how people usually study this it's kind of stuff like if i can remember first they make them have a test that would be supposing to deplete their resources so they have to do something very frustrating and arduous or Resistance. So like the marshmallow test where kids had the marshmallow set in front of them, that study has actually been debunked uh, a lot since then, but it still kind of holds for standard socioeconomic status people. If they're sitting there watching it and they want it and they stop themselves from taking it, that will deplete some of their, their willpower resources. And then there would be a follow up to see what, how that affected it and have something like, I want to say... For some reason I'm thinking about where they hold a weight, relative a medium weight dumbbell in one hand and they have to hold it as long as possible. Or I think there was like a, a painful hand submersion in cold water, not damaging, but just really uncomfortable. And they timed how long they could do these things for. And the, the more ego depleted they were, the, the shorter the amount of time they could actually do it. So that they found to be confirming the theory. Yeah. And that's the idea. Like the marshmallow test. You, you have this marshmallow in front of you. You're told you can't eat it. You have to resist it. And part of that study that was interesting, I saw was the children that resisted it. It wasn't that they had necessarily better willpower per se. But if you look at the film of what they are doing, they were actually averting their eyes. They were looking elsewhere in the room and they're putting their heads down. So it was actually a form of distracting themselves. Yeah, it was a form of removing the trigger and therefore not depleting the ego. So these kids were not fundamentally necessarily fundamentally uh, having a stronger willpower. They just had stumbled upon better methods. Yes. And the other, the other debunking of that study was that if you took into account how wealthy or poor the person was, poor people were more likely to cave, which they saw as like a lack of will. But the more realistic interpretation was that these kids may not have had this as an option very frequently. And they don't actually know maybe their, their life has been very inconsistent promises not delivered a lot of the time. And so when the person says, Hey, we'll give you a second one if you wait, they don't know if that's true. And so for them, they're like, it's, this one's here right now. I can have it like a burden hand is 
worth two in the bush. Uh, so I'm just going to go for it. They're not going to think of that, that. I love that criticism of, of the method because it doesn't take into account the, yeah, the, the child's past experience with trusting that a reward is going to be coming through. That is very true. Yes. Cause it doesn't always, if, if life is predictable and generally things are delivered as promised and things go as planned, as I guess the more affluent are more liable to experience, then yeah, you can, you're more likely to wait. And another flaw of the study was like, I think it was done with primarily affluent kids and they did well, which is like they came from affluent families. Of course, they're likely to do better than most people. Anyway, that's all of this off of that. You you wanted to talk about the replication crisis slightly about ego depletion again because we just we've been talking about a lot of different ideas. Is the idea that you have a certain amount of fuel in your brain that is expended to do anything that is requiring exertion or focus or emotional control? What was the refutation you said? There was like a, a replication of it, but you said that it wasn't very good. Yeah, they did a meta analysis with several different laboratories. I think it was twenty three different laboratories actually doing the, this test where they were trying to see if ego depletion actually existed. And the tests they were using, the criticism is that it wasn't actually measuring ego depletion. The test they were using is called an E-cross test, where participants were instructed to go through a text and cross out uh, the E's. And, and there's complex instructions of cross out only these E's or the, only those. And the idea of this was so that they exert their mental energy doing this complex task. And the idea is that they have less willpower than after the fact because they've depleted their ego on this complicated task. Criticism is that that's not actually depleting for someone's ego. And the participants actually said they didn't really necessarily feel depleted after the fact. Uh, some did who found it extremely exerting. To me, it looks highly cognitive in the sense that you're doing a very rational task where you're like looking at an E, okay, doing some kind of rule-based computation and then going forward, whatever, which is very different than resisting the alcohol in the fridge. There's an emotional component to the ego depletion that we're talking about and particularly addiction that really is not measured in the study when you're using an E-crossing test. Okay. So this is an example of how a scientific arguments can happen because to me this does seem at least you have to make it long enough or something like an unsolvable puzzle these things have been used because it doesn't really matter the cause or the the cost the thing that's incurring the cost to willpower it doesn't have to be emotional as you said it does cross over so like if you say you went to work out really hard in the gym that's physical that's not cognitive or emotional at all other than the fact that you have to put up with the pain and all that and endurance but that still has a similar effect it's what this is intending to go through is that it takes focus and energy to continue focusing on something that's incredibly boring and arduous. So like, while it sounds really easy to cross all the E's, I think they had very specific requirements. You had to be like, wait, does this count? Or does that count? Yeah. The more complex rules version. Yeah. Yeah. You're going through like really painstaking, annoying things that is not enjoyable. It's not rewarding. And you're kind of like, why am I even doing this? So I, that is where we'd have to have another study, which looked at a different test and said, like, see, it doesn't hold up in these conditions. Yeah. But I guess if the, the participants themselves are saying that they don't feel spent, then it's probably not a great uh, manipulation. Yeah. I think that there's a part in the study that says uh, that, however, for those who considered it as depleting, uh, higher rates uh, of effort required, there was an ego depletion effect. So most people didn't find it depleting, but for those who did find it depleting, there was ego depletion. And so the test itself is not really, I guess, valid. No, I think it is still valid because like there are certain things that most people will find tiring. But like if we say give like calculus problems to the average person, that'll be very difficult. They might not even be able to do it. But if we give calculus problems to a mathematician, they might just find it like either like not depleting at all because it's going to be either very easy or maybe engaging even. So it could be energy. And that's kind of the, the flaw in the theory is that it's very subjective. We can't know for certain. And it's, I mean, it's not uh, maybe a flaw is a bit strong of a word, but it's just, we can't, we can't know what it's going to be for each person. Some people are going to react positively. Some will react neutrally and some will get tired from things. Okay. I think we've come to our agreement here. So I, I like the concept as a, a general guiding way to look at willpower. I like that. It's practical, but not taking its specific conceptualization, I guess, in the original Baumeister form as truth and universal. So I guess clinically, if you're looking at the concept of uh, ego depletion, you're not going to come 
as a scientist in in, in, in interaction with someone and be like, oh, check this box, check that box. You're going to look at what is actually depleting for for this person in front of me right now. I think, okay, well, let's not, I just scoffed a little bit. Maybe laughed, laughed. I laughed a little bit because you're like, as a clinician, most of the people listening to this are not going to be clinicians. So let's let's make it more usable, I think, for average Joes and Josephines. So how do you actually motivate someone? Well, it's not reinforcing willpower by saying, just do it. Use more willpower. Try, Try harder. Just try harder. You know, like that's, that's an attempt to reinforce willpower, right? People try to cheerlead you and, and all that. So how do you actually motivate someone? Let's get more practical here. And well, it's, let's shift back in. Well, motivate someone or some, motivate yourself. Motivate someone or yourself. It could be both. Shifting back over self-determination theory. So looking at how do you pump up these three ingredients that we talked about before. So love the first one being as someone's level of control. If it's you, you're looking at, okay, what small things do I have control over in this situation that I can actually start doing? There's a lot that you don't have control over. That's right. Uh, but look at what is a very small thing that you can actually do. If you're talking to someone else, you're relating to them in a way that facilitates their control, meaning you're not telling them what to do. You're, you're drawing in them into a collaborative conversation about the change, asking them uh, open-ended questions about what options they've tried before, and you're keeping them in control of the process. So if it's yourself, you're looking at things that you can do, small things. Uh, if it's someone else, you can ask that same question, but doing it in a collaborative spirit where you're keeping them in control of, of the situation, not feeling like they're being uh, coerced or told what to do or anything like that. Yeah. As a lay person, my attempts to apply this, I think the mistake primarily that I've done in the past is that I already had a pre-decided conclusion of what they should do, and I'm trying to guide them towards that. And so I think, yeah, the emphasis is definitely on the collaboration. You go in and say, like, you can't tell somebody what to do, but you can say, like, can we talk about this issue that you're having that maybe it's affecting you, maybe it's not, maybe you see that it's affecting them a lot. You say, I see that this is going on. Can we discuss this? Again, ask for permission, because you just go, hey, we're talking about this. Then chances are they're, they're going to be completely closed off, and they, they don't want it. Like, I, I feel like that when somebody takes away. Yeah, it takes away. Yeah, autonomy. There you go. And then you can say, like, this is the issue. What what sort of things can be done about it? What have you considered? And I mean, we're getting a little bit lost. Correct me if I'm overstepping in the wrong direction. I don't know. How, how would you bring in relatedness to this conversation? Because you would get them to go there. And I mean, I've heard that acting like a coach can actually be backfiring in some ways because they will avoid you. Well, you would you would act not as a coach or, or, or something, but as a, a collaborator. And you have to really make sure they want the, the help, actually. And so that you're not trying to like, hey, buddy, let's let's talk. You want to talk? And then, you, you know, you're, you're doing it more of like, a, I'm here. We're going to talk now. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like they're coming to you or they're asking you, or if you, yeah, you have a piece of advice you want to give, here's a quick little formula. Ask for permission, share the advice, ask their thoughts about the advice. So it's kind of like a, sh- a sandwich. It's uh, you, you ask for permission before giving it. You, you say what it is and then you say, what are your thoughts about that? What do you think? Sound reasonable? Sound bad sound terrible like whatever i mean i guess the example i've done something similar to that was i do it even more like third person like it's not coming from me like hey um can i share something with you that i've i've seen somebody else do that's successful and they'd be like all right sure like, i've seen this person do this they seem to be focusing on this and this what do you think about that how do you how do you feel like that would work in your situation and then they'll either go with it or shoot holes in it it's a lot more useful than any other approach that i've tried it's actually surprisingly so because you think it's such a small tweak but it it does get met with much better reception yeah, yeah. so like it's saying like hmm interesting you know some people I've talked to have tried this other approach in which they do this, this, and this. Uh, you know, it's had some good results for them. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that approach. Yeah, and there's actually a video I'll link in the show notes. Oh, yeah, and I wanted to curb that in case I don't include it at the beginning. The show notes are not super comprehensive. We're probably, I'm going to reference a bunch of these things, but like, honestly, these are really obscure papers. I don't remember who made them. And that was kind of a, a stumbling block for the podcast that originally starting. It was like, I wouldn't have done it if I knew that I had to get all the research because it's just, it's a lot of extra time and effort in there. But I will include a video that was kind of a role play that you showed me of motivational interviewing. That's actually the more applied version of this, if I am interpreting that correctly. And he talks about a busy man about his weight. And it's actually amazing how it goes. But again, it is a role play. It's not an actual real thing because that has a whole like uh, privacy issue going on there. I have 
personal experience situations like that, maybe not as transformative, but I'm sure you also can speak to it, right? Yeah. I, uh, well, I mean, this is the core of what I do on a day-to-day basis is working in this kind of art form of motivation. And so we've kind of talked about the science, but there's a, there's a whole art to it as well. And we can do a whole episode on motivational interviewing. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Teeing that up. Do any, does anybody ever say like, thank you profusely. And you just like kind of chuckle and brush off your shoulders and say, just doing my job, man. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really. You just ever lean into that? Just, just doing, just doing my job. Sorry, no, not a big deal. I'm not a hero. Oh, well, it's what I do. It's just, uh, you know. All right, and uh, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say on this? We're we're going a little bit over our time limit. Yeah, I guess in summary, the job is addiction counseling is like selling people on their own best intentions. It's like a compassionate selling. You're really working on the motivational realm. It's it's so motivation focused, but not in the way you would expect. Because when you think motivational focused, you think it's like rah rah, yeah, you can do it, great job. And some of it is validation, like good job, but it's more of like a recognition of progress. Uh, and so you're like, wow, last time we talked, you were here and look where you are right now. Like you've done so much, you've come so far. And that points to that other piece of the self-determination theory that we didn't discuss in practical terms, which is competence or mastery. We talked about uh, the autonomy piece of how to keep them in control. We talked about relatedness of just kind of, again, relating to them in in normal ways that doesn't turn them off. But then how do you facilitate mastery? It's just that. It's validating things that are actually in reality they're doing. You're not just making up things and saying good job. You're pointing out evidence of well, you were here back then that you did this and now you're here. Wow. And so that provides that other piece of the motivation as well. Right. And I just want to plug a book that we are not being paid for. If you get through audible, then maybe we get paid for it. I don't really remember what, how disclosure has to work in here, but it's a book called how we change. Is that correct? By Ross Ellenhorn. Yes. Love it. Yeah. That book is amazing on this topic. If you're interested in motivation, this is a great one. We actually are going to eventually try to get Dr. Ellenhorn, I should say, on the podcast. Hopefully we can arrange that at some point. But for now, his book will have to do because it's actually one of the best I've read in a long time. Yeah. I, I was obsessed with it right from the first chapter and I sent it to you and you're like skeptical. But then, yeah. Yeah. And then I finished it before you. <laughs> yeah. And then we both reached out to him after and we've been talking to him like like fanboys or whatever. It's weird being able to reach out to an author of a great book and have them actually engage. And I spoke to him on the phone. So yeah, nuts. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. We got to we gotta cut this off. So Steve, you want to say goodbye? Say goodbye to your fans? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about uh, how to motivate someone or how to motivate yourself, I've written a comprehensive study or summary, I guess I should say, of both of those things in two separate articles. And uh, so in the show notes, we can link both of those articles if you're looking to really have that template in front of you in a non-audio format that you could kind of refer and reference. And and so we talk about, I talk about all of that uh, stuff in there. There we go. Yeah, we'll link it. All right. Thanks for tuning in and we hope to see you next time. Take care. All right. So this is one of the first times we've done this. It's just me by myself. No Steve to, to weigh me down. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate everyone that's been listening and wanted to say that we are still quite a small podcast. If you know of any podcasts that you think are interesting or that would be willing to collaborate with us, or if you know anybody that would actually like our podcast, you can suggest them. For the first group, I should have closed that off. If you know of any podcasts that would be good to work with us or would be interesting for us to have on, please let me know and I can try to reach out to them so we can start getting some guests on here. And yeah, as always, thanks for tuning in. You're particularly a bit of a downer, some would call you. So I'm going to, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. No, sorry. You're, you're, you're too down for me.